I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to CounterCurrents Radio. We are doing another one of our Brain Trust live streams tonight. My first guest is Millennial Woes. Woes, welcome back. Hello. Hi. I was just sharing the link. Um, hello. Oh, great. And uh, yes, and uh, I hope everyone's doing well. Yeah, and my other panelist is Frody Midyord. Frody, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be on board, and I'm looking forward to getting some interesting questions tonight. There are a whole bunch, and I'm sure that new ones will come up as we get into this. So I would like everybody to go to Entropy, and I'm even going to put a banner across the the screen, entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents. If you'd like to leave a donation there, uh, as well as a comment or a question, we would be most grateful. Uh, entropy is the only way that you are allowed by the powers that be, by the merchants who run the global credit card processing industry. Uh, it's the only way that you are allowed by these people to use a credit card to send money to countercurrents. They're trying to cut us off basically from commerce around the world. And they've been fairly successful at cutting us off from credit cards. And Entropy is the only uh, platform that allows us to get credit card donations. So if you are wedded to plastic and you want to use a credit card to help us out, which we very much appreciate, do it through Entropy. And in gratitude, not only will we thank you, We'll also discuss your comment or question in the in the chat in the in the panel. So anyway, I would like to uh, just jump right in because I've got a bunch of questions here. So if you're comfortable, guys, uh, let's get started. Uh, Eric sent in a question. He said, "What would you be doing if you weren't doing white nationalism?" And I thought that was a pretty good question. Uh, what would I be doing with my life if I wasn't spending it on white nationalism? Well, uh, the assumption there, I guess, uh, is, well, okay, let, let, let me just put it this way. The only circumstances under w which I wouldn't be doing white nationalism is if white nationalism were the dominant political paradigm. Uh, if I lived in a white nationalist society, what would I be doing? That's really the question, as I, as I can understand it. If I lived in a white nationalist society, what would I be doing? Well, I would probably be doing something very, very similar to what I'm doing now, not to contribute to the triumph of white nationalism, but to contribute to it staying on top and keeping our enemies down because it is going to be a, an eternal struggle, basically against the forces of darkness and stupidity. And we're never going to be able to say that we've just won this and we can hang up you know, our, our tools and uh, you know, head home and retire. So I, I really don't think that there's any alternative to, uh, to doing white nationalism for me because it's an eternal struggle and I'm committed to that. Uh, and if we weren't... Uh, if, if we were in charge, we would have to fight to stay on top, and so I'd still be involved in the fight in some way or another. Frody, what are your thoughts on that? If, if you weren't doing white nationalism, what would you be doing with your life? That is actually a very good question. I like the question, and I would be lying if I said that, you know, the fact that we're under siege 
uh, hasn't motivated me extra, <laughs> you know, uh, given me some extra motivation to dedicate my life and my time and my passion to our traditions, our heritage, those kinds of issues. But even before I was politically conscious, I had a great passion, especially for the ancient history and ancient traditions of Scandinavia, of the Nordic countries, Icelandic sagas, the, the, the folk music, the history, the religion, the mythology, the language, the literature. Uh, those kinds of things were important to me even at a very young age and even before I understood the political elements involved. So I probably still would have had some passion for that. And I think that in uh, a country and in a society that isn't under siege, you still cultivate those things. So I don't think that I would be doing something completely different. But because I sort of have this bohemian personality type where I am uh, very much devoted to cultural issues, films, literature, music, those kinds of things are my passion. And everything that I've done, uh, you know, all my life uh, in <laughs> working life, things like that, to to make money or to um, yeah, to have a job, those things have been in order to uh, in order to feed those kinds of interests, those kinds of passions that have been uh, at, at the forefront of my of my whole being of everything that I'm about really. So I've never really been interested in being a normie and having a very successful career, uh, a, a normie career as a lawyer or uh, as, as, a, as an engineer, uh, like a, just a very uh, normie successful person in that capacity. So I, I think I would still be a bit of a bohemian because that is just my, my personality. Uh, but as far as cultural metapolitical um, interests, as far as that goes, I probably would be doing pretty much very similar things, cultivating an interest and um, a passion uh, for literature, philosophy, art, film, music uh, that celebrates uh, our, our, our heritage. Um, that is pretty much what I'm about. That's very good. So, Woz, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this struggle? Well, this is a difficult question for me because, I mean, it's really, I, I don't know which version of the question he means. What would you like to be doing or what would you likely be doing? Um, because what I would like to, I mean, my other thing in life was that I, I wanted to become a direct, uh, like a film director or something like that or a, a writer novelist uh something like that but what i would likely be doing is i have no idea because you know the you know my life was in the doldrums uh when i started this and i i didn't think that this was going to be a career i just did it because youtube was there back then and you could do it and i wanted to talk to people i wanted to talk to the world so it that that was why i started and and then it it, you know, surprisingly to me, it became a career. So, and then, you know, other possibilities emerged because of that. So, um, 
I never chose this, you know, consciously as a career choice. That's the thing. But um, to, I mean, I think what he really means is what would you like to, I mean, in another version of your life, what would you have done? And uh, the answer is uh, either film director or uh, a writer of some kind. Okay, that's good. And th there's a question that's come in from Martin that is related to this question, which is why I'm asking it now. And that is the question, what is your hobbies? Because in a way, uh, a hobby is what you're doing when you're not working. And so the earlier question is, what, you, what would you be doing if you weren't doing white nationalism? One answer to that question is to look at the things that you're doing now that aren't white nationalism, because everybody's got hobbies, right? So I thought that was a good question. So basically, the things that I do are, I, I like to watch films, I like to listen to music, I like to take walks, I like to visit historical places, I like to read for fun. And reading for fun means reading literature, poetry, art books, and sometimes history. And most often, history consists of ancient history. So those are my hobbies. Those are the things that I do in my spare time. And of course, a lot of those things I manage to uh, basically work into my work. And so, uh, and, and that's partly because I conceive of countercurrents as being about everything, and especially being about metapolitics, which includes art and culture and so forth. And so I, I try to basically make even my hobbies at least consistent and supportive uh, of, of my major task. Well, Frody, what are your hobbies? Well, <clears throat> I also uh, read, I actually read less now than I did uh, in earlier years. Uh, that's probably, well, uh, <laughs> to a large extent because of my brain has adapted to the internet, which is a thing that I'm not very happy about, but um, I'm probably reading more online than I'm reading books uh, now. I'd like to change that, so I'd like to go back to reading more actual books, uh, just like I did when I was a, a bit younger, or well, not that long ago, really. So I do, I do enjoy reading. One of my greatest passions uh, in the past and my greatest hobby was martial arts. I did a lot of mixed martial arts. I enjoyed that a lot and it was a huge part of my life. That is uh, several years ago now, but that, that was really a great hobby and a great passion that I had. I've never been a fan of team sports, but martial arts and especially mixed martial arts um, is a, a branch of, <laughs> well, it is a type of, of sports um, that, that I was just very passionate about. I, I followed all the big uh, organizations for competing. I you know followed all the, the great athletes. I watched all the fights. I trained a lot. I you know went to the gym a lot, trained a lot of mixed martial arts back then. And uh, it was a huge part of my life, and I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and that is something that I um, that is probably my hobby that I've been most passionate about. So that's that's one thing. Uh, films, music, literature, that is my other hobby. And I love traveling. Uh, so I just love going to, I've never been to, you know, the, the, uh, 
sunny uh, places with a beach and uh, just relaxing on a beach. I've never been on those kinds of vacations. When I've been on vacation, um, I've liked to go to the big European cities and going to museums and just watching our cultural history. Um, that it, So that's one of my passions as well. Um, yeah, as far as hobbies goes, probably uh, mixed martial arts was has been my my biggest passion. That's great. I have never regarded working out as a hobby. <laughs> I've always regarded it as a chore. Uh, what was, what are some of your hobbies? Oh uh, well, I enjoy uh, vintage TV, British TV, and and American as well uh, to an extent. Uh, but I'm, I'm more into British stuff from the 70s and 80s um, and a bit from the 90s and a bit from the 60s. Uh, I like, I love music. Music's a, a, a huge part of my life. I'm always listening to music. Um, and what else? I mean, I honestly think that that's probably about it. Um, I, I mean, I enjoy learning about art history, religion, uh, philosophy, you know, that kind of thing, the kind of stuff that would be uh, quite unsurprising for people, I think. <laughs> okay, Tanya. Tanya writes in, what are your favorite museums? Which ones would you recommend? So we've touched, we've almost gotten to this topic already. Uh, I, I'm a big museum person. Whenever I go to a major city, I go to the major art museums and major public monuments, major sculptures, palaces, public squares, things like that. That's what I'm really interested in. I'm interested in seeing history and especially art history. I'm most interested in the beautiful. Uh, eventually, I get around to the natural history museums because I am interested in that too, but I start out with art history. So my favorite, I'll just give three. The three greatest museums that I think everybody needs to see are the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. That's the one that I've been to the most. It's an absolutely magnificent collection. I've also really loved the British Museum in London, one of the great museums of, of basically human history, uh, especially European history. And the third is the Louvre in Paris, uh, one of the great collections of all time. Those three can basically teach you everything important about European history. And you will not just learn the general stuff, you'll be actually in the presence of some of the great masterworks of European history in those museums. So those are the three that I recommend to start with. There, there are some tiny, out-of-the-way, boutique kinds of museums that I think are incredibly rewarding and beautiful too. And I'll name a couple of those. Uh, one is the Villa Stuck in Munich, uh, Franz von Stuck's villa. That is absolutely fascinating. Another that's very similar is Gustave Moreau's museum, Musée Gustave Moreau in Paris, which is his mansion. Uh, and it's filled with unfinished and uh, a few finished works, but mostly unfinished works in all stages of incompleteness. And it's absolutely fascinating. It's, I think it's the, the best insight I've ever gotten into the creative process of, of a great artist. So those are a couple of, of minor ones. Uh, another museum that I saw just once and then I would really like to dip back into is the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam because I'm an absolute 
madman for Dutch painting. Uh, I went to the Van Gogh Museum too, which is a short walk from there as well. So, Frodi, what are your favorite museums? Which ones do you recommend, your short list? Right. Um, when I go to museums and art museums, I tend to favor sculpture rather than painting. Pa you can see paintings <laughs> online. You can see paintings in books, but you can't really see sculptures in books. Uh, and I just love watching sculptures uh, up close. And my all-time favorite museum in the world is the Borghese Gallery in Rome because it has the uh, a bunch of uh, Bernini sculptures. It just has a lot of uh, satyrs. It has a lot of the ancient world is just alive there. And I'm madly passionate about the ancient world, about the sort of pre-Christian his history of Europe. There is something primordial. There's a primordial force there. There's an energy there. There is something sort of untainted. There's something purely European there. And uh, it, is, it is our, th those are our roots, <laughs> you know, the roots of, of European culture uh, in, uh, in, in the Roman world, and, and the art is pretty much unsurpassed, <laughs> the, the aesthetic style. And the Borghese has uh, all kinds of ancient style art, and also, like I said, the Bernini sculptures, and they are some of the most, some of the greatest. Uh, he is probably the best, the, the, the best uh, what do you call, sculptor <laughs> in, in history. Um, it's just amazing, and I could just walk around there for days. And it's 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 just um, the it's so passionate. I, I'm not a huge fan of uh, you know a lot of the calmer art, the sort of more peaceful, like uh, 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 like David, for example, the, the statue of David. It's like well, it's it's beautiful, but it's it's it, it, it doesn't con contain the primordial fire like Bernini does. Uh, so that is really the my favorite gallery of all galleries, all art museums that I've visited. Uh, so the Borghese Gallery in Rome, and I really love the uh, the Glipothek in Copenhagen, uh, which also has a, a bunch of uh, ancient Roman sculpture uh, and some newer stuff. It just has a lot of a uh, lot of beautiful sculptures, and and that's really what I love when I go to a museum. Uh, I, I try to go to museums that have a lot of nice sculptures rather than paintings. I've been to, for example, the the Uffizi Gallery in Florence uh, with a lot of paintings, and it's like I get bored uh, quite easily when I look at too many paintings, but I never get bored from uh, looking at uh, sculptures. One of the best museums in Copenhagen, I think we were there at the same time, is the Torvaldsen Museum. He was one of the great... Absolutely, uh, yes. <laughs> one of the great European sculptors. And again, this is a, a building that was his home, basically. Uh, a lot of these great artists lived like princes. <laughs> they were doing uh, commissions for princes and kings and the Catholic Church and so forth, and they were handsomely rewarded. And this is basically a museum of his work and his creative life. And again, uh, I find it very, very uh, inspiring uh, to get inside the creative space 
of these people, uh, try and understand their their minds and their process. And just seeing how they lived is is really uh, part of that. So what, was, what are the museums that you would recommend to people? Well, the two of you are far more experienced in this than I am, uh, which is embarrassing. Uh, the, I mean, I, I know the, the, the Chamber Street Museum in Edinburgh. I know the, uh, the British Museum. You and I have gone around there together, mm -hmm. uh, one uh, exhibition that they had there. Um, but, and I've also been to the Rijks Museum in uh, Amsterdam and the Van Gogh Museum as well. Uh, so I, I do know these places. Um, but that's, I don't really have anything to add to what you've said. Uh, I've been to far fewer museums than the two of you. It's quite, uh, it's quite humbling. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, let's go on. I have a few others here, and then we'll get to uh, some th uh, thank yous uh, to people who have sent in some chats and uh, donations at DLive. So Sutton writes in, why do people think that the further north and west you go in Europe, the purer the population? This is a really fraught question. Uh, but, but let's take it first in the most naive way possible. Well, the reason why there is this assumption that some people have, it's a somewhat naive assumption that the more Western and the more Northern Europeans are, the less likely they are to be mixed with anybody else, it is simply if you look at the geography. Uh, if you go to the far North of Europe, there's nobody else there. Uh, if you go to the far West of Europe, there's nobody else there. Uh, if you go to the East of Europe, far enough, you arrive at the Asians, the Asiatic populations, uh, you arrive at the, the Caucasus and, you know, the, the peoples there and so forth, the peoples of the Middle East. You, again, if you go east and south, uh, you arrive at the Middle Easterners. Uh, you go further south, you arrive at Africa. And so I think just intuitively people believe that, well, chances are uh, the fewer chances of admixture uh, th th there will be fewer chances of admixture in the corners of Europe where there are no close neighbors of different races. So I think that's just the intuitive plausibility of it to a lot of people. And the, the, the reason why this is like a, a hot button issue is that you get into these uh, whiter than thou com uh, comparisons these, uh, how to put it, um, you know, we're whiter than you kinds of arguments. Is, is so-and-so white enough? And I think all of those arguments are really generated by a false set of assumptions. And, and, and that's this. It's, a, it's, it's basically generated by the, the, this situation. You have, um, you're, you're planning something. You've got a plan and you want only white people. Say you only want white people in your family or you only want white people in your imperium. You only want white people in your colony. You're constructing something and therefore you're worried that somebody is white enough to be part of your project. 
the whole underlying assumption is that kind of thing where you're you're um, you're constructing something and you're wondering about the human material. It makes absolutely no sense to me uh, to say to ask if if a Greek is Greek enough to be Greek or, or Romanian enough to be Romanian. Uh, Romanians might be not insufficiently white to be in your family uh, or in your ethnostate or in your colony or whatever, but they're completely white enough or Romanian enough to be Romanian. And this is why I think in some ways ethno-nationalism uh, is superior to this uh, sort of just global uh, notion of whiteness, uh, white nationalism, the idea that, okay, there's a white race and therefore there should be a white um, political unit. And then you have to worry, well, are these people white enough for my white political unit? If you don't go down the path of constructing that, but if you think of white nationalism as simply about assuring that every white people has a homeland, then none of this really matters. Uh, you know, the people of Sicily are Sicilian enough to be Sicilians. And the, the people of Finland are Finnish enough to be Finns. And it doesn't matter what your thoughts are about their racial purity or their proximity to foreign, uh, foreign genes and so forth. So that's the, the way I want to look at it. Uh, and uh, the, the other thing that needs to be stressed is that white people are all very similar to one another. Uh, the, the people in the furthest west of Europe are actually genetically very similar to the people in the furthest east. Uh, the people at the furthest north and the furthest, furthest south are actually very, very similar. Where there's very little dramatic di uh, genetic diversity in Europe, even though uh, there's, there's a lot of surface diversity. Uh, in skin tones and hair color and eye color and stuff like that. There's, there's a lot of that, but there's actually an astonishing genetic unity and a continuity that goes all the way back to the ice ages, basically. And I, I think that it's important to, to stress those common things. Uh, but at this, by the same token, if you're talking about political units, well, the ethnostate doesn't really... Uh, require you to get into these uh, wider than thou or is so-and-so white enough uh, kinds of invidious comparisons that just drive a lot of people crazy. Now, there's a lot of bantzing in the movement about, oh, this group isn't white enough or people like to make Irish jokes and things like that. I strongly discourage that. I look down upon it. I can't police it. I, I can't police every occurrence of it. I'm not, I'm not going to, because uh, if I make that into a litmus issue, well, it, it just creates a lot of unnecessary conflict. Uh, but I've made very, very clear in an essay, which I hope will be linked presently in the DLive. It's an essay on Nordics, Aryans, and Whites, basically. It's the question. It's an essay on who are we? Yeah, that's that's one of the titles of it, Nordics, Aryans, Whites. Uh, and it just, it criticizes people who want to say that to be white is to be Nordic, to be white is to, to be Aryan, these sorts of ideas. 
uh, I, I'm rather, I'm very critical of that. I, I don't like this whiter than thou posturing and so forth. And I don't like spurious ideas of racial purity. Uh, and so I've, you know, gone on record about this years ago. And, and I still maintain that this is counterproductive uh, when it crops up. Uh, in any case, uh, let me uh, first go to Frodi on this. Frodi, uh, again, the question is, why do people think that the further north and west you go in Europe, the purer the population? Right. That is an interesting question. <clears throat> why do people believe that? Um, well, <laughs> I mean, it's... it's um, it's very obvious. I mean, it's uh, well. First of all, uh, it used to be true that the uh, I think the Swedish population was singled out by the racial scientists a uh, hundred years ago when this was still legal and people could still do it as the most racially homogeneous. That is the 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 population that has interbred least with uh, other neighboring populations, and of course. This has to do with geography. Uh, so I think we're, we're talking about three things here. Uh, racial purity, that is, that this is a population that has interbred less than other populations have with, with their neighbors. And of course, uh, if, you, <laughs> if you live in Scandinavia for uh, a very long time, uh, you, you will cross paths less with other populations than you do if you live in... Uh, in Greece or in other places where where other you know where we you have borders uh, with other races, so of course just because of geography you have fewer chances to interbreed um, with with other populations. So therefore, naturally, you will uh, you will not do that as much as as others do. So I, I think that is the the obvious reason. So in a sense that uh, that has been true that they have interbred less because they have been more distant from other races. Of course, uh, if you live in the Middle East, you're going to uh, mix with the people who, the other people who live in the Middle East. It's it's purely uh, it's pure, purely obvious. The other thing is, uh, so I think we, we're dealing with three factors, like I said. The other thing is simply looks, that if you start thinking in archetypes, what is the, the whitest, uh, most different from, you know, Arabs or blacks or whatever. Well, of course, uh, it, it is the contrast is greater between someone who has blonde hair and blue eyes uh, rather than someone who has brown eyes and, and, and dark hair. Uh, the contrast between them uh, and, for example, other races, Arabs or other races who have, uh, you know, also dark hair and, and dark eyes uh, I think the contrast is is less is is less less obvious, um, so I I, th I think it's simply just the visual impression that you know people will, if you think of what is an archetypal what is an archetypal black person well you have an image of that what is an archetypal white person well uh, th you know <laughs> the, the contrast will be greater between a. Uh, uh, um, a Nord than uh, someone who is closer to to the other races. I mean that just on a on a completely visual basis. The other thing I think has to do with America, uh, and that is that North Europeans created and built America, and the and they make up what Wilmot Robertson called the majority, uh, and uh, and other 
Europeans, Southern Europeans, and people from other parts of Europe, other than you know England, Germany, Scandinavia, those places, uh, they came in later, and there was a contrast there. And I think that because we have a culture that is very much centered on uh, an American point of view, we see things through American glasses often in popular culture all over the West because of American media and cultural political hegemony, really. Uh, I think that has sort of um, gone through and uh, impacted the rest of Europe as well, that since that has been the cultural center, of course, those are the you know first pure Americans, the people who built the country. Other people came later, and you know the you can you, they were seen as outsiders and often you know were outsiders uh, and and people um, had those sort of dual identities, things like that. and I so I think that the American perspective is also important in in understanding those issues because, of course, uh, uh, an old uh, <laughs> sort of the old patrician stock in America were Nords or Wasps or uh, English or, or Northwest Europeans, and uh, of course they if they were the elite, uh, the old elite in the country, and they were the people who built the country and were in power. Of course, they were seen as the ideal there. Um, and, and so I think those three elements really uh, is why people think in those terms. Um, Woes, what are your thoughts? Uh, I don't really have any anything to add to that, except I think that people do idealize uh, the, the Nords, and I think they almost want to think of them as something that's very, very separate from uh, the rest of Europe, because... Uh, <sighs> I mean, it's a, it sounds shallow, but I think it is a physical, it's a, it's a visual thing. Uh, I think that people see you know, the, <laughs> the blonde Swedish woman as, uh, as a sort of perfection. And this isn't just, you know, racist white people who think like this. I think that probably all over the world, uh, people have this aspirational image. Of course, it's ironic because it's genetic, so you can't aspire to it really. But well, except by race mixing, and that and that's for your progeny. But anyway, the point is, I think that people s almost want an ideal that cannot be uh, attained, and they all want it to be separate, uh, almost like angels, you know, on the earth with us. Now that's uh, very fanciful, but I think there's probably some truth in that. That's great. So going over to entropy. Uh, Sordello has written in with 10 US dollars and a related question. Is there such thing as Aryan and what is it? What is its relation to native Europeans? Yeah, this is one of those issues that I talk about in this essay on who we are, uh, Nordics, Aryans and whites. There's this idea that, well, Aryans, we're Aryans. We want to identify with Aryans. And so uh, what what is this? What's going on here? Well, the narrative is this, at some time in European history, in the, probably the Neolithic period, a uh, certain branch of Europeans uh, came, wandered out of Europe into the steppes and acquired a, a different language. They made up a different language somehow. These things happen. Uh, isolated groups start doing things differently. And 
this took place somewhere in Eastern Europe between, say, Lithuania and the Black Sea. And these languages then came back into Western Europe. There was a diffusion of, these, of this language group and its customs and the people, of course. Uh, and it was an enormous diffusion. It was a diffusion that started around 2000 BC and was going on hundreds and hundreds of years later and really came in waves and waves and waves, even far into the AD period. Uh, the, the steppes were this huge place generating huge populations of white people. And they spoke these languages, and these languages were found as far away as India, India and Europe, and hence this term Indo-European. Now, uh, a, a term that was associated with the Indo-Europeans is the Aryans. Uh, the, it's, it's a term for the noble people. Uh, it's a term for these basically warlike, nomadic tribes that... Uh, diffused all the way from Ireland to India. And as far south as places like Syria, they, they went all through the Middle East. Uh, they give their name to Iran. They give their name to Iran and Ireland. And it, it, they both have the root in Aryan. Uh, so what what is Aryan? Well, Aryan, first and foremost, it's not a racial classification. Uh, it's a linguistic classification. Uh, but it refers to the this subgroup of white people that developed a certain pantheon of gods, a certain set of legends, and a certain language, and then diffused it very, very widely beginning around 2000 BC. And, and I, I think there's something a little goofy, though, about an overemphasis on the idea of the Aryans. Uh, because if you want to say, okay, what we really are is Aryans, well, then suddenly you start thinking that you're brothers with Persians and Hindus, because you have Indo-European languages, and you're not brothers with Hungarians and Finns who don't speak Indo-European languages, or Basques who don't speak an Indo-European language. Uh, Aryan and Indo-European basically mean the same thing, and they refer to a language and a culture that diffused very widely. Now, the Aryan is one ingredient of modern Europe. It's an ingredient of modern Iran. It's an ingredient of modern India. Uh, but it's just one ingredient. And there's something uh, kind of LARPy and also sort of self I don't know, self-alienating about thinking that, you know, w we should only identify with that Aryan ingredient. Uh, the way I say it is it's like dogs dreaming of being wolves, <laughs> uh, only identifying uh, with their, their remote wolf ancestors and thinking that anything else in them is somehow degraded and low. Um, and it's especially goofy when you recognize that the Indo-European speakers were just a branch of the European family that wandered out of Europe and evolved uh, distinctly for a while before wandering back into Europe. Uh, they were very alien to the people of India when those groups arrived there. They were very alien uh, in the Caucasus and in Iran and so forth. But when they returned to Europe, they were basically just returning to their distant cousins. Uh, 
they weren't all that different. So uh, is there such thing as Aryan and what's its relationship to native Europeans? Well, Aryans are native Europeans. They're native Europeans um, who developed a different, a distinct language and, and uh, pantheon basically uh, outside of Europe or in the far east of Europe and then diffused it back through basically the whole of Europe at a later date. So uh, what, was, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, what are your thoughts on Aryans? Well, uh, actually, just what I said earlier. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I, I think it's, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, you'd be better asking somebody like um, Survive the Jive because he's an absolute expert on this. And he and I converse about it quite, quite frequently, actually, but he's an expert. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I think that people all over the world uh, are aware of, people from the north who are a certain image of perfection and they, they seem reasonable creative intelligent sensitive capable resilient resourceful uh, all of these things and uh, it's difficult not to uh, not to admire them and, and not to love them but uh, as for the reality I mean that, that's another matter. And I, I, again, it seems more scientific than, than you know, my wheelhouse. Great. So what about you, Frody? What are your thoughts on this? Uh, what was the question about Aryans? Uh, why is it important? Why is it relevant? Is that the question? Well, the question is this. Is there such thing as Aryan and what is its relation to native Europeans? Okay. Yes, there is such a thing as Aryan. And uh, what is its relation to European generally? Well, it is. Uh, it, it puts us in a context, I would say, <clears throat> because, uh, and it is relevant for several reasons. Talking about white people or the white race uh, is is one aspect, but that is purely biological. That is one aspect of our existence, of our identity. But we are more than just biology. We are also our history, we are our language, we are our uh, spiritual traditions, our metaphysics, uh, as in, you know, metaphysic beliefs about met metaphysics in our tradition, things like that and uh, mentality, culture, attitude, these kinds of things. And it is, I think, interesting to, uh, well, one of the reasons why it's important is to understand how we are related to, to other people, our cousins throughout uh, Eurasia. And uh, one reason for studying, a very important reason for studying uh, Indo-Europeans or Aryans is that it can teach us something about, uh, for example, comparative religion, right? So you can study the European um, branches of our religion, but then there are uh, branches of the Aryan religion or the Indo-European religion, our, our, our cousins in, in, uh, in Asia and in India, for example, um, other things have survived there, so we can compare and and fill in blanks, and we can learn things about our history and about ourselves by studying our uh, our studying ourselves in a wider context. I think that's massively important. I think that that there was a, a massive realization uh, and a, a huge contribution to our understanding of who we are 
when uh, the the sort of linguists and historians, uh, uh, the sort of racial researchers understood this, uh, you know, how we are related and and how this relates to our history, things like that. I think it is massively important because of that. Uh, so I think we can learn something from from putting our own history in a greater context with our cousins uh, in in other places. So yeah, they Aryans is a, is a completely Aryans and Europeans is uh, you know these terms are legitimate. The they refer to real things, and uh, I think they are very much relevant to us. And I think especially when you contrast when you put it in a contrast with, um, I mean th that's how it's been used often. You know when when they talk about Semitic and Aryan, right? It is simply. Uh, cultures that have two different origins and when we talk about i mean europe has been christian for a long time but uh you know the the, the christian religion originally came from a completely uh, different uh, culture whereas we had another culture and i think it, it benefits us to study our own origins to understand who we are um so yeah i i do think it's real and i do think it's relevant great thank you uh Nick Jilvey over at DLive uh, donates a diamond and says, today is VE day. VE day. Boomers are being insufferable. It's not just boomers being insufferable. But it's definitely normie cons. And it's even uh, center-left people now. The center-left, uh, they feel in charge. Suddenly, they're patriotic. Uh, yeah, Kite String donated one ice cream. Uh, Niraya donated a diamond thank you nix does another lemon thanks nix uh mr soul patch won ice cream nix has donated a diamond who'd win a cage fight between greg and woes i think it would be me uh just to be perfectly honest just because i'm so mean woes is yes woes i agree with that. nice woes yes. is just too nice yes um <clears throat> he'd stand there uh you know want to wanting to talk or something uh he'd want to talk this out uh, I'd, try to just, I'd distract you by asking you questions about Arians. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wouldn't fall for that in that kind of context. The old man Yinzer donated one ice cream. I mean, I mean, one diamond, thank you very much. And an ice cream as well. Uh, El Degogo, three lemons. Uh, Sylvian, one diamond. Norse Nature, two ice cream. Old man Yinzer, one diamond. Rabbi Ruthless, one lemon. El Degogo, one lemon. And a thousand and one cuts has donated one lemon so thank you very much i'm going to zip over to entropy and if you want to follow me to entropy it's entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents it's right across the bottom of the screen uh, it's also in the chat with the live link if you'd like to follow me over there and send a donation question comment etc we will be happy to entertain them so there's a bunch of them over here I just don't want to miss out from uh, anything. So C writes in with three US dollars. Thank you. Reconquista Mark, 135. That's very generous. Elizabeth writes in with 50 US dollars. How do I protect my 20-year-old daughter against African pop culture? She is very liberal because we live in Toronto. She is very sweet but impressionable. This is an excellent question, and my answer to this is it's, it's complicated, but it boils down to something very, very simple. 
The simple root of this is that you as a parent are the number one influence on your child and you always will be. There are people out there in the culture who say you can't influence your children. That's bullshit. They say that just because they want to influence your children and they don't want you competing with them. Uh, the school teachers who say, oh, you can't teach morals to your kids, they'll just rebel. Uh, they have no compunctions about filling your kid's head with absolute garbage and, and falsehoods all the time. So recognize that you have the greatest power to influence your children's outlook on life. You already have been the greatest influence on your daughter's outlook on life. How then do you protect your daughter from African pop culture? Well, the best thing you can do and the best thing that you could have done starting very, very early on is develop her tastes so that she sees African pop culture for what it is, for what it's worth, which is not all that. They think they all that, but they ain't, right? Uh, you can develop kids' tastes, and the way you develop their tastes is by praising things and blaming things, by uh, saying this is good and this is bad, and they will imitate simply those judgments. And then what you do is you start deepening and refining those judgments by pointing things out to them, pointing out the oddness. Uh, for instance, um, you hear African music. Isn't it repetitive? You just sort of point that out. Isn't it just doing the same thing over and over and over again? Couldn't they introduce some little thing like, a, I don't know, another melody, for instance, or uh, change, the, change the rhythm up a little bit, something like that? Just get them, first of all, to be aware of the, the incredible simple-mindedness of it because it's not deeply satisfying to the human soul. It's too simple-minded. Uh, I was uh, sitting in my office with a friend uh, the other day, and I put on Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. I just had a hankering to hear that. And we were just bowled over again by what a magnificently complex and interesting European piece of music that is. And I said, okay, well, let's listen to When the Levee Breaks, uh, which is this blues song that ends the album. And they do some really interesting stuff with this blues, this Delta blues, When the Levee Breaks. But even though they work on it and add to it, it's still incredibly repetitive and childish. It's infantile. You know, it's, you think of the lyrics of Stairway to Heaven, the complexity and the symbolism of it. And then you hear, it keep on raining, levee's gonna break. You know, it keep on raining over and over again. If the levee breaks, I got no place to stay. Mean old levee. You know, the levee is mean. That's about the depth of, of this. You know, it's just childish whining. So th that's how you do it. You basically educate the tastes of your children to understand what's spiritually significant about European music, what's beautiful about it, uh, what's stimulating about it. And then when they listen to African pop music, they're exposed to African pop culture, they're just going to see how empty it is, uh, how empty and boring and childish it is.
and you've won at that point. Uh, the, the best inoculation against degenerate popular culture is simply an exposure, a reflective, guided exposure to real culture. Once you've got that down, uh, you're immune. You're just immune to that crap. And it doesn't actually deprive you of the ability to enjoy it on a certain level in a certain context, but it certainly is not something that you're going to genuflect before, uh, that you're going to think, oh, this is art when you hear rap music. Uh, white people who go on about rap music like it's a great aesthetic experience are just clowns. They're just clowns. Uh, and, and, the, and the thought of them uh, you know, occupying mental energy and space with this basically incredibly simple-minded uh, and vulgar music when we're the race that can appreciate Bach and Beethoven and Led Zeppelin's best stuff, right? It, it's, it's just such a sad joke. These people, these people have been degraded, and they've been degraded intentionally, and the people who are degrading them know they're degrading them, they're laughing at them, and they're enjoying the great classical music. And they're enjoying, they're appropriating the, the heights of European classical culture. At the same time, they're trying to make your kids wallow in the mud pit of, of the, the most base African pop culture. Woes, what are your thoughts on this? How should Elizabeth protect her 20-year-old daughter against African pop culture? Uh, she should show her daughter recordings of you talking about African pop culture, because uh, that was hilarious. And I think perhaps the best inoculation could be recordings of you reciting <laughs> these these lyrics and then explaining why they're they're so bad. Well, I think it's so awful. <laughs> I think it'd be quite hilarious to have somebody. Uh, you know, I, I love how to put it. Yeah, get these great Shakespearean actors with these incredibly uh, hoity-toity British accents. Uh, the, the, the people who can recite all of Shakespeare's great poetry and, and great scenes and get them to uh, recite Bitches Ain't Shit, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You know, imagine Sir John Gielgud uh, reciting Bitches Ain't Shit. Uh, uh, <laughs> It's such a joke at that point. Yeah, there there is actually a a long time, about ten years ago now. There there were two Shakespearean actors, like very classically trained actors, who uh, acted out a real comment thread from YouTube between two teenage girls. It was an argument underneath our YouTube video, and it was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Really, really funny. Uh, so. That 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 kind of thing has been done, but yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, it, it's it. You know, I've still got you know some white guilt about this. Whenever I talk about this kind of thing, I feel it's like kicking someone when they're down. You know, it, it's ah, because there's really not much you can say for uh, African music, and and the little that can be said has been said exhaustively over and over again in a desperate attempt to make them seem equal to us and to make their their artistic output seem equal to ours. But the truth is that, as you say, it's simple 
too simple. Not It's not simple in the way that Kraftwerk is simple. It's simple in the sense that uh, a three-year-old scrawlings are simple. It's primitive. Um, it's childish. It's very repetitive. Um, and it's unadventurous. It's, it's not imaginative. It's not creative. It's not sensitive. It doesn't really say much at all about the human condition. What it does say, it says in the most crass uh, terms. It has no depth. It has no uh, quality to it, really. It, it's it's animalistic, frankly. And I'd, actually, I would dare anyone to, like, the, the most uptight progressive, can they really deny that this is true? Well, uh, these people I don't think really so. never have sat down and exposed themselves to, say, world star hip-hop. I, I I swear every disingenuous white liberal just needs to... The, one of the first things we'll do in our re-education program is just make them watch world star hip-hop for two hours a day. I, I think that's extremely educational. <laughs> yes. I, I, I've only... I haven't watched it myself, but I've only ever heard terrible, terrible things about it. And, you know, even the title suggests it's going to be pretty awful. Um, oh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean... You know, I do have a soft spot for some early 90s uh, songs, rap songs, but only because of the nostalgia factor for me personally. And, you know, that it's located in a very specific time, like 1990, 91. But that's it. I don't think that the music is inherently, it, that it has intrinsic quality or worth. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's basically trash. And I, it's, again, my guilt, as I say those words, my guilt kicks in. And I, oh, you're, you're, that's a very blanket statement and all that. But it is. You know, it's very most few. white pop is trash too, but the black well, pop is uh, especially yeah. trashy. Uh, I yeah, mean, yeah. And they know I mean, it's trashy. They they love it. It's, it's flagrantly transgressive. All this uh, uh, wet-ass pussy stuff, or I can't even remember the name of the quote-unquote artist who's done this, the... That that is flagrantly, transgressively gross, yes. and, and that's the purpose of it. Uh, and, but know. it's also what's interesting about it is how accurately it reflects the the, the worst stereotypes about black nature in you know, black psychology. Because what the black what the guys will talk about, what they'll sing about, rap about, is you know bitches, bling, turf wars, gang rivals. You know, just violence. So, sex, violence, and thieving, and mindless, fr frivolous consumerism. It's just yeah. disgusting. It's it's so low grade, and yet this is how they choose to present themselves. Yeah, that is a wholly authentic art art form for them. It's wholly authentic. They're not pretending, you know, like Diana Ross and Supremes. You know, to, they're they're not following certain sort of white centric music models uh they're they're just doing the the most stripped down ooga booga kind of stuff it's very authentic and it's authentic in the same way that pimp culture is authentic these people are outlaws they are not conforming to white standards of behavior in any way and this is the expression that you get and uh, most people should run screaming when they see this. And uh, unfortunately, so many young people are so impressionable and they want to be liked, et cetera. And they're told this is good and they're told they're virtuous for liking it. And 
their tastes have been corrupted and their parents and the culture has basically defaulted on inoculating them with better tastes and better standards and exposing them to better art, sadly. Frodi, what are your thoughts on this? I think this is a very serious question. I think uh, this is something that many, many parents worry about uh, because, yes, you can influence what your kids do, but unless, <laughs> you know, unless your kids are going to sit at home and hold your hand uh, until they're have reached a, a sort of a mature age, they are going to be out among other people and spend a lot of time there. And, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to, to watch everything your kid does. And one thing that I've said many, many times, and a thing that I'm going to continue saying is that we are not individuals. We are social creatures and we do not, um, our actions are not motivated by rationality. They're motivated by our social natures. And your kids are going to hang out with someone. And they are going to be, uh, you know, they're going to get a lot of peer pressure. And they're just going to do a lot of things that their friends are going to do as well. And you don't want them uh, <laughs> yeah, watching MTV uh, music videos or listening to that kind of music. And it's And culture isn't just music i guess and films things like that it's it's ways of behavior and simply being a part of the modern big city uh, culture you i think this lady uh, said that she was living in uh, toronto which i think i mean i i don't know toronto very well but as far as i've heard and everything i've heard really is that it's it's really a horrible multicultural place so the best advice i could give and, and this is really the major motivation for me to uh, why I started the Scanza Forum, why I organize events where people can meet. It is simply because I want people to network and meet up in real life so that they can have uh, a stable, a strong network of people around them in their day-to-day -day lives. And especially when their kids grow up, I want them to be able to know other people with other with the same kind of values that you have so that your, your kids and their kids can grow up so that they have other kids and other people their same age that they grow up with who have their same sensibilities. Otherwise, you know, peer pressure is extremely important. And if they are only surrounded by hostile enemy culture, they are going to be heavily influenced by it. I think it's inevitable. So that is really a major reason why I organize conferences, why I organize events, and why I always encourage people to get out of the uh, online isolation, you know, because what really, and this is sort of a, a business wisdom, uh, right? It's like successful businessmen. They always say that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with that is your uh, your ability to succeed your ability to do anything your your what kind of person you become is sort of an average of the five people you spend the most time with i mean that's a crude thing that's just a sort of uh that's just a saying in a way but it, there is an important truth there and that is that the people you hang out with the most they are going to influence you and the reason why you should build and create strong real life networks with other people is so that your family can spend time with other people who 
say similar things and have the same values as you do because it's like a friend of mine said you know that because many many parents struggle with this right many parents struggle with this and and his worry is yeah i mean if if it's only dad saying this and everyone else is saying something else there's going to be a temptation to maybe sometimes not listen to dad, you know, uh, but if dad and a bunch of other friends of the family and their kids, and it becomes a natural thing and it becomes easier for them to live in a healthy culture. If they have other people around them who cultivate the same, uh, same interests and, and, and same aesthetic sensibilities, same ways of behavior, same, uh, um, yeah, same cultural values really. I mean, that is really a very, very important thing. And that is, like I said, that is exactly why uh, I think it's important to organize events where people actually meet up because, you know, theory only goes so far, right? Rationality only goes so far. And the second thing, and this is something that I've said many, many times before as well, <laughs> move out of the big cities that are uh, the epicenter of of all the, the horrors that are going on with multiculturalism. Move away from the worst places. I think pretty much every country in the West has better places and worse places. And I know that not everyone can move. Some people are prevented from moving for all kinds of reasons. But it is still something that I say that, you know, we're probably not going to be able to save these uh, cities and, and the worst places from total decay. And I think you're better off moving to, to a, a better uh, part of, of your country if you can do that. I mean, this is not specifically uh, <laughs> just for people living in Toronto, but I think as a general way of thinking, uh, you should try to avoid the cities that are ruined, destroyed, because you don't want to put your kids through that everyday experience of being uh, harassed because they're white. And kids are harassed because they're white when they live in multicultural cities. I, I'm going to repeat that. Kids are being harassed every single day because they're white and they live in multicultural cities. There's nothing you can do that because uh, do about it while you live there because you're not going to follow your kid around and hold his hand or her hand every single day in school and everything. And there's going to be a lot of pressure to, to cave in and to adopt the, the dominant culture, which is the just physically aggressively dominant culture. There's going to be a lot of mental pressure, psychological pressure to do that. That is what people do. That is human nature. So I would, you know, I would strongly suggest that the people who can should avoid uh, the worst cities in the West especially when they have kids because you know i hear so many horrible stories of how white kids are harassed in multicultural cities in the west and it breaks my heart and i think that the most important thing is the most important thing you can do uh, to protect your kids is to 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 not give them that everyday experience i mean it's it's a very different difficult thing and i'm not trying to shame anyone who who wants to stay in big cities but you know that that is my best advice that's well said so let's see here. Uh, Lovecraft's cat. Well, this is a big complex question. Let's do a couple of silly light questions uh, just to cleanse the palate, so to speak. Okay. Petrini. Petrini. Oh, okay. I'm going to go with Fletcher first. Fletcher writes in, did you watch Elon Musk on Saturday Night Live? That's an easy one to answer. 
Um, Fletcher, Saturday night, Saturday night live has sucked longer than the Simpsons. Uh, it's probably sucked longer than you've been alive. Uh, then many of these people have been alive. So no, I didn't watch Saturday Night Live. I I wouldn't know anybody in the cast of Saturday Night Live today, and I'm certainly not going to watch it. Uh, even even if Elon Musk is on, uh, Woz, did you watch Elon Musk on Saturday Night Live? Saturday Night Live. No, no. Uh, I, all I know, I, I've heard that he apparently uh, said that he has Asperger's syndrome. On, on while he was on that while, during his appearance, so, and some people have said that that's uh, a lie um, to to make him uh, more acceptable to you know because he otherwise if he doesn't have Asperger's syndrome then he's just a straight white male, so some people have Genius. suggested yeah. yeah yeah some people have suggested that it's a sort of way for him to buy social credits. Well, there's something definitely authentically kind of spurgy about Elon, though. Frody, did you see that show? No, I've pretty much never seen Saturday Night Live. The only, th- I mean, <laughs> my only sort of mental association with Saturday Night Live is Jim Carrey. That's uh, that's how old my uh, you know any any recollection of Saturday Night Live is. So no, I've not seen Elon Musk. I would be surprised if he's not an uh, uh, an autiste and uh, that he doesn't have Asperger syndrome. I would be surprised. So uh, I'm uh, yeah, that's not that's not a shocking announcement, really. Yeah, I I think I'm going to go with that being uh, authentic. So Petrini writes in, "What is the last thought?" I'm sorry. What is the last song you listened to? The last movie you watched? The last sporting event you watched? Okay, that's easy. These are quick ones. The last song I listened to was No Quarter by Led Zeppelin. I was listening to it just before the guys showed up on the show. Last movie I watched, uh, Dr. Zhivago, directed by David Lean. And the last sporting event I watched was the Kentucky Derby. Uh, Woes, what about you? Oh, well, uh, the last film I watched was With Nell and I, which I watched in... uh, anticipation of talking about it with Frodi on his Decameron Film Festival a few, well, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, something like that. Uh, so that, and that's, a, I mean, that's how I, I very rarely watch films these days. You know, I, I often say this, that when I was young, uh, younger uh, than I am now, um, right, a child and a teenager, I watched films relentlessly uh, all the time, but from about 20 onwards, I just stopped. So yeah, that, that's how frequently I watch them. Um, as for songs, it was it was either, it was one of two songs, I don't know which one it was. It was either a 12 inch version of Snap's Exterminate by Snap, from it's an early nineties dance song, or it was a hauntology alternative rock song by a group called Grumbling Fur uh, called Tilda Holds, hold on a minute, let me see this. Get the hold. Tilda Holds a Sword and Lilies, which is a song I, it's a wonderful song and I, I've been listening to it an awful lot over the last week or two. Uh, it's kind of addictive and you can watch, listen to it over and over again because um, it doesn't seem to have a, a real beginning or end really. Um, so that's, those are the last two songs I listened to. Last sporting event, I would just have to say uh, not applicable because I, I have no idea what the last one I watched was. 
Great. Frody, what was the last song, last movie, and last sporting event? Well, okay, let's start with a song. I'm not really sure. I was listening to a lot of sort of 90s nostalgia <laughs> just for fun, just trying to sort of uh, trying to think of different songs that I remember from the early 90s. Uh, things like 74, 75, those kinds of songs from the early 90s. So I listened to a bunch of those. Uh, and I, I can't say exactly which one was the last, but let's let's just go with that one for the song. Uh, the last film I saw, last night I watched uh, a French film called Calvaire. Uh, I forget the English title, uh, by a director called Fabrice Duvels. Uh, I think he's Belgian, uh, uh, French-speaking Belgian. It is a horror film from 2004. Uh, it's called Calvaire, like I said. And uh, I, I guess that's Calvary, uh, like the in the biblical thing. Uh, it, it is a horror film. It is a, a very horrible horror film. Um, so people with um, people who like those kinds of films, like uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre style horror films, uh, might like this one. Uh, so so that was the last film. When it comes to sport events. I, I haven't seen any sport events in years. I probably, if I, you know, just guessing, the last sport events would be some sort of low-level uh, football match, and that is soccer match for you Americans out there uh, on the Faroe Islands. <laughs> it's probably, you know, I probably had a beer with some of my friends just watching some local little team on the island uh, play football. That's probably probably it because I don't follow sports at all. Great. Okay, so James Watson sends in three U.S. dollars. Anyone who is familiar with Giorgiani have any thoughts on his work or his predictions? I edited for publication one of Jason Giorgiani's books on Hedayat's The Blind Owl. I am not familiar with any of his more recent work, and I'm not sure what predictions you're referring to. Um, James Watson also writes in with three U.S. dollars. What will it take for nationalism to become dominant in the West? Financial collapse? Well, financial collapse, uh, as somebody once said, um, the collapse is just sort of a rapture for racists kind of uh, idea. Uh, it's, it, we all hope that something is going to get through these people's thick heads and wake them up. Uh, the trouble is, is that a civilizational financial collapse might not benefit us. Uh, it generally benefits the people who have the most resources and power, and that's not us. So that's a very risky thing. And a lot of accelerationists who want to collapse civilization, they're, 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 that's a real gamble. It's a foolish gamble in my view. Ultimately, what's going to make nationalism become dominant in the West is changing people's minds. And it doesn't have to happen in the form of a giant cataclysm that wakes everybody up. Uh, it can happen in the form of you slowly working on your best friend or your spouse or your kids. You should be working on your kids. If any of you have kids out there, you need to be not just shaping their taste so they're immune from the crap culture around them. You need to be shaping their value judgments and their politics as well. You have the power and don't ever let anybody tell you that you don't and don't ever, um, you know, give up that power to other people. Uh, 
Frodi, what do you think? Will, uh, well, actually, I'm going to go to Woes first. Woes, what do you think uh, it will take for nationalism to become dominant in the West? Do you think a collapse is, a financial collapse is a likely candidate? Uh, a financial collapse would be an would be an opportunity for sure, um, and I I do think that probably without a financial collapse we probably won't manage it. I think it's a necessary condition, but not sufficient condition. Uh, what ultimately needs to happen is that we need to take over positions of power in society such that we can advocate this. Um, right now, I mean, you saw what happened with. Uh, with COVID and the lockdown, that was an opportunity to discredit globalism and you know, consumerism and so on. But they, we didn't occupy any positions of power from which to do that, whereas our enemies occupied all the positions of power. And so they immediately had control of the narrative and were able to use COVID and the lockdowns to their own advantage. And they did do so immediately. They, they, they didn't wait at all. They didn't, they barely, I think it was like a month or so after the lockdown started that we started to hear about um, uh, the Great Reset and so on. So that's an example of using a disaster, you know, not letting a disaster go to waste. And so, yeah, I think that a financial collapse would be very useful in that sense. I also think a financial collapse is probably inevitable. Um, but as I say, what's critical what's critically important is that when a financial collapse happens uh, we have control of uh, citadels of power throughout society so that we can uh, advocate this change which i think is i think the change itself uh, isn't alien to people it isn't exotic or strange to people um and uh, so it's not like it's going to be something strange for them. Uh, but I also think that the people, the public, are extremely malleable uh, to new ideas and to old ideas. Um, as we've seen over the last 12 months, the public are extremely malleable. And uh, I, I tend to think, I, I, I veer ever closer to thinking that the public are pretty much like the general public, and uh, not individuals among the public, but the general public I think are pretty much irrelevant to social change because they just do whatever they're told and they believe whatever they're told. So I'm, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't think we need to get through to the public, but I do think we need to get through to powerful and, and individuals who have the potential to have power in the future. And uh, you know, th that's what I see as the, the path forward. And, um, yeah, the, the the key thing is power. If you have power, you can use it for what for almost whatever you want. Whereas if you don't have power, you're constantly being oppressed by those who do, and you're constantly having to work against their, uh, well, their machinations. And it's it's extremely difficult to do, as as the three of us know only too well. Right. Frody, what are your thoughts on this? Again, I'll just read the question. Mm -hmm. What will it take for nationalism to become dominant in the West? Financial collapse? Well, I think that people overestimate the, the importance of financial collapse or any other kind of collapse. Because, I mean, I was going to say what Woes said, that it's a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition. But I don't know if I really believe 
that. I don't know if I believe that it's a necessary condition. It's certainly true that people who are comfortable will not do anything, will never rebel. Uh, I mean, in, in connection to the COVID lockdown, uh, a lot of my, many of my friends have told me that, you know, they've talked to people who said that they were never going to get the vaccine. They were never going to go along with, <laughs> with, with that uh, project or that narrative or anything like that. They were never going to, they were going to resist. But uh, as soon as government started waiving uh, COVID passports that you can now go to bars and restaurants again, then most of them, and this this is anecdotal, so take it for take it for 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 what it is, but but then most of them just went along and said, yeah, okay, I'll just I'll just get the vaccine then, out of convenience, right? So <laughs> you know, when people uh, have a lot of wealth or at least comfort. Uh, when they're comfortable, when they have material uh, comfort, when they're drugged by wealth, where they're pacified by wealth, uh, yeah, I do think that they are less likely to do anything. But that in itself, uh, that you know, you end up in a in bad in a bad uh, economic or financial condition, that in itself does absolutely nothing. What you'll see is that. Uh, you know, when there is a crisis, uh, when there is a crisis and something happens, there's there's chaos and then someone ends up on top again. Well, if, if you're at the bottom before the crisis, you're probably going to end up at the bottom after the crisis as well. If you if you haven't done the work uh, in revolutions, when when uh, some political movement has risen up and taken power and overthrown the old elite, it's when the old elite is weak and uh, when when they are well organized, things like that. I don't think that is really how things are going to work uh, moving forward. And if we take the Soviet Union as an example, when the Soviet Union fell, you know, it was rich oligarchs who could take advantage of the situation. They ended up in pretty good positions afterwards. Of course, there were power struggles between the oligarchs, but it's not as if some bum who didn't have anything before the the collapse of the Soviet Union ended up uh, in a in a in a great position in uh, in in Russia after that. I don't think that is a very common, uh, you know, a, a common event in history that that happens just as a fluke. And I definitely definitely don't believe in any spontaneous uprisings. People people don't have uh, any agency. Masses don't have any agency. Only. You know, individuals have um, agency, and uh, you know it, they there is <laughs> there's there it's limited what they can do really. So yeah, I I do think that what you need to do is you need to build long term uh, metapolitical movements and build communities. Again, I get back to that point. That's why I organize com conferences where people meet up in the real world because it is communities that that uh, are going to are going to be most important for the future it is not you know abstractions or anything like that it is the people you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis that is what's going to shape your life so yeah i don't know if uh, a financial collapse is all that important and it's definitely not going to do anything on its own uh, comfort and material wealth corrupts yes but but uh, sort of material uh, degradation <laughs> doesn't doesn't in itself uh, lead to any success either. So I I think that people should we should stop talking about these sort of superstitious solutions to our problems that 
you know, a savior is going to come when everything collapses or that people are just going to rise up, that when things get bad enough, people are going to rise up. People haven't uh, risen up against the genocidal tyranny in South Africa, and they're not going to do it spontaneously in the West either. Bjornar writes in with 10 US dollars. Thank you so much. What is your opinion on the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and the late Christopher Hitchens? Well, I'll, I can take this uh, first if you want. Um, the first year of my channel, 2014, was not dominated by videos about this, but I did quite a lot of them. And I've always despised these people. Um, and despised the new atheist movement. Uh, and it wasn't, I don't know if movement is quite the right word, but uh, cultural force that, that it was. Um, it, I guess it's still there now, but it's largely, it's interesting that it has largely petered out because I, I wonder why that is. I think, that, I think that we're now in a religious age, actually, but then that's, that's another matter. I think that <clears throat> I always find there, there's, I always find them smug and ignorant i didn't like that nihilistic as well i didn't like that they seem to enjoy saying that there is no god and that there's nothing beyond the material they seem to like that they seem to enjoy it and i always find that disgusting um and then there are the social implications of stripping a people of their religion which is their inevitably their moral framework and uh, a large part of their identity which gives the, in turn gives them power to act and defend themselves. I think it's sick to strip people of that. I, I see the results of it everywhere in Britain. Uh, and it's it's catastrophic for, for people's behavior, for their life choices, for the culture that they live in. Um, it's, disas it's absolutely disastrous. And uh, so I've always hated the people who brought this awful message and and who enjoys bringing this awful message uh, i i despise their nihilism i despise their childish rebelliousness as well that's another aspect that i i just find extremely tedious these are men in their they, they were in their 50s 60s 70s i think dawkins is about 80 now they, they should know better uh, and you know, I think it's also true to say that some truths probably shouldn't be said, definitely not in front of the uh, the general public, and that this is one of them, uh, because you expose them to, uh, well, the abyss. And, uh, you know, it's, it, again, it's, it's fine for someone like Dawkins to, to just bask in there being no God. Uh, but for someone who's living in a dead end town where nothing, uh, where there are few hopes of a future, um, not much to do, a terrible local culture, local environment, uh, God used to be their, their, the, the way that their life would become meaningful and their existence was meaningful. And for them to hear that there is no God is far more damaging and catastrophic than for Richard Dawkins to hear it. And I wish that he had the humility to recognize that. So, uh, and, and the Christopher Hitchens is another one. I, I just find him reprehensible and disgusting as a human being. Uh, I hate 
hearing him, I thought he, he, he was always incredibly pleased with himself. And it goes very much hand in hand with the libertarian mentality and with the new atheist mentality. Uh, his He was perfect for both of those movements. So, yeah, I, I just, I hate it. You mind if I go next? Yeah, Greg. Uh, so I think that um, this is a, this is actually an issue that I've thought about a lot, and uh, I love watching debates about the existence of God and about evolution. I've watched it all. <laughs> I've read it all and watched it all. It, this that's just one debate, one issue that I I find constantly fascinating. I think. Richard Dawkins, especially, is very bad at what he does. He is a good biologist. He he contributed to his academic field. He uh, contributed to science and our understanding with his books in the seventies, and uh, with uh, the book, his first book that he's most famous for, probably, the Selfish Gene. It's a very interesting book and very sort of enlighten enlightening. It's it's an enlightening read. But when he comes into matters of the religion, uh, the philosophy, the, the the philosophy of religion, he is out of his depth. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He makes a fool of himself. He's embarrassing. He's really embarrassing. His his book, The God Delusion, is embarrassing. It's not good. It's not. It, it's not. It, he's not good at philosophy. He's good at biology. So yeah, he's good when he's describing uh, biological processes when he's describing biological principles when he gets into philosophy he just makes a fool of himself and what is more uh, and this I, I actually i don't know of anyone else who've said this i've said this for years the funny thing about dawkins and that whole movement is that they are christians on the level of values all the values that um that 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 they stand for they are christian values their their morality is you know a sort of post christian morality but it's you know it's christianity without supernatural elements the values are still there and and it's embarrassing to see him you know hold on to these values that aren't really justified and can't be justified without the 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 sort of supernatural underpinnings that that was trying at least to justify them in the past and his own objection to to the obvious conclusions you as a, if you if you believe in sociobiology he is one of the major proponents of uh, you know early proponents of sociobiology and if you believe in sociobiology th that i mean it just gives you some very obvious conclusions about human nature and human society and he doesn't want to accept that he just wants to hold on to his magic morality uh, that he got from christianity which he would probably deny and and that makes him uh, 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 just an embarrassing person i think that um hitchens is is a, a pseudo intellectual in a way he is in a in a way more interesting than than Richard Dawkins, in the sense that he at least has some intellectual curiosity. I think he has, uh, for example, uh, defended uh, Holocaust revisionists in the past. You know their right to to uh, intellectual inquiry, right? So I mean, he has some interesting elements like that. But when he debates people on philosophical issues, he has nothing. He brings nothing to the table. He's just a well-known name. 
and and he's an empty suit uh, in, in those debates. So I think the whole new atheist movement is basically uh, Christianity without uh, uh, unjustified Christianity, unjustified Christian morality. They want to hold on to their uh, sort of middle class bourgeois Christianity without supernatural elements. And I've uh, th this is something that I find very interesting. And like I said, I enjoy watching those debates. Uh, and and Richard Dawkins is good when he talks about biology. But, but embarrassing when he talks about the philosophy of religion. I've never watched any of these, and I've not read Dawkins' God Delusion book. I've only read his first two books in biology. Uh, I, no, I read The Blind Watchmaker, too, and I thought that was good. Here's the thing. I think the arguments that a, the atheist debaters that I've read in the past uh, are very, very sound. I, I think that they can win the arguments. I don't know about this particular crew and the social milieu and you know its medium on YouTube and popular culture. I've just ignored all that. It, by then, it was an, an issue that just didn't interest me anymore. I thought it would all it was settled in my mind. So I can't really comment on on the this movement in particular. Uh, so let's move on then, uh, because we've got some good questions here, things that I do have something to say about. So Mohammed Aryan writes in, he's Iranian, I would wager, with five US dollars. Greetings to you all as we come to the end of the holy month of Ramzan. Uh, it occurred to me to ask you if any of you have ever fasted, ever completely abstained from food for 14 to 15 hours. Yeah, I have fasted. I have fasted a number of times, and there was a while when I would fast once a year as like a tune-up thing. And I think fasting is actually very good. You can't go without water, of course, uh, but you can go without food. And I've done it basically for detoxing purposes. And the first experience of fasting that I had, I fasted, I think... It was more than 36 hours, and I felt absolutely horrible after like eight hours of not eating. <clears throat> and the reason I, I started feeling horrible after about eight hours of not eating, uh, according to the theory that I read, is that the body, once it's not getting nutrients from outside, starts basically looking around, <laughs> looking around uh, the cupboards, basically seeing if there are any canned beans in the back or whatever. Basically, it starts scavenging your tissues and it starts looking around. And so it starts stirring things up, including toxins, things that should have been uh, metabolized and gotten rid of, but couldn't have been at some, for one reason or another at, a, at particular times. And so it feels like the worst hangover ever. In fact, it was the worst hangover ever because I've never been a drinker. So it was an absolutely awful experience and it lasted for like the first 20, it lasted till the end of like the 26th hour. And then my system started clearing and then I felt this amazing focus, this amazing mental focus. I didn't feel physically energized because I hadn't eaten in more than a day. 
but I felt mentally energized and a great deal of mental clarity. And I realized, geez, you know, my mental, my mental life is everything and had been suffering maybe just because of, well, wear and tear. And, and so I thought I would do a detox fast every year. And so I did that and I, I would do it generally between Christmas and New Year's. Generally what I would do is I'd spend my Christmases alone, just given uh, my life situation at the time and travel and so forth. And so between Christmas and New Year's, I would seldom do anything. And it was a period of time when I would just think, okay, I'll, I'll do the fast. I'll do the fast. And generally, I found that after the first two times I fasted, the process whereby I went from feeling absolutely horrible and like the worst hangover ever to feeling incredibly clear uh, got quicker and quicker. And so anyway, I... I actually recommend it. I also practice, uh, in a way, daily fasting. We all fast, right? The word breakfast means breaking the fast. But I try and keep all of my food consumption within an eight-hour window every day. And I find that that works really, really well for me. And I think it's 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 a it's a good health measure. And uh, I think Huntley Haverstock over at Countercurrents has an article. Uh, I think he called it White Ramadan about fasting because he's a health maven. Uh, you might check that out. Uh, Frody, have you ever fasted? I have fasted in the sense that I haven't eaten for many hours, but never because I've tried never intentionally. I've, I'm one of these sort of autists that if I don't have a woman to cook for me, and put food on the table in front of me, sometimes I forget eating because I'm too busy reading or thinking or doing things like that. Uh, so, yeah, uh, when, I'm, when I'm on my own, when I don't have a woman, I, I tend to sometimes not eat uh, because, you know, I do other important things rather than cook. So, yeah, I've, I've gone for hours without eating but but never because i've tried for health reasons it's because yeah i've just not eaten what about you woes have you ever done a fast uh yeah when i was um when i was 18 i did a detox diet where i think i fasted and then ate only fruit for like i think two weeks or something uh <laughs> it was fashionable at the time uh, so yeah, it definitely makes you feel quite strange, as uh, as I recall. But that's all I can tell you. I haven't done it since then. Uh, Muhammad Aryan writes in with another ten U.S. dollars. Secondly, Dr. Johnson, in an interview he gave to Der Spiegel in 1966, Heidegger said, "When the French begin to think, they speak in German." On another occasion, he categorized English as completely unphilosophical. Now, as a native speaker of English and as a polyglot yourself, what is your take? Do I think that English is an unphilosophical language? No, absolutely not. I do think that the English, the the English people, uh, are not a people with a genius for philosophy. I will say that, and that might be what he was saying that the English are unphilosophical. Uh, Heidegger had a great deal of disdain for British empiricism, uh, which for him was just one tiny click away from pure British anti-intellectualism, which is a very broad streak of the, the British culture, unfortunately, especially in the upper classes. 
uh, where they should know better. Uh, I think that f- English is a great language for philosophy. Uh, it's a great language for almost everything because it has the greatest vocabulary of any of the European languages. It's got these two distinct vocabularies, the Germanic vocabularies and the uh, Latin vocabularies that fused together. So there is a a great deal of of subtlety that's possible with the English language. And I think it is a a great medium for writing and thinking philosophically. But generally, I would say that, yes, uh, a lot of the philosophy that's first written in English I mean, when you think about it, okay, there's Thomas Hobbes uh, or Locke or uh, Barclay. A lot of these people are just uh, incredibly shallow uh, and and goofy uh, in some ways. And they're engaged in, I think, attempts to basically narrow the horizons, narrow the mental horizons of people, uh, which is a very... uh, indecent thing to do with philosophy. Uh, However, I also think of uh, David Hume, who was a great philosopher. I think Hume was a a very first-rate thinker. Uh, His friend, a fellow Scotsman, uh, Adam Smith, first-rate philosopher. The Theory of Moral Sentiments is one of the great books in the history of moral philosophy, in my opinion. So uh, I don't generally think that there's anything wrong with the English language as a medium of philosophical thought. And when you get uh, people like Hume and Smith, uh, these people are deep thinkers and they're exquisite stylists. They're among the best stylists in philosophy, uh, especially Hume. Uh, Hume, Hume's English is up there with Schopenhauer's German uh, in terms of philosophical style. However, the, the deepest thinkers in European philosophy really are continental thinkers, and most of them are are Germans. Uh, There's a lot of truth to that. Uh, uh, So French and German is more often the language of great philosophy uh, than English. Uh, But English, I think, as a language uh, is enormously uh, precise and subtle and powerful as as a tool of thought. Woes, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, no, 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 nothing to add to what you've said. Uh, th- th- this is uh, not an area of expertise for me. So, Frodi, you are the person I in this conversation who speaks the most different languages. So, what are <laughs> your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I usually, you know, I just usually roll roll my eyes at these statements that. Uh, what, what was the statement that uh, English doesn't lend itself to philosophical thinking or writing, things like that? It's Statements like that are just rubbish. Of course, you can do philosophy in English. You can do philosophy in German. If you had a language with an extremely limited vocabulary, I guess, you know, Somali, uh, I, I don't know what language is called, but I guess, you know, they didn't have even have a dictionary. Maybe they have a, a language that is too primitive for philosophy. But otherwise, of course, you can do philosophy in English. Of course, you can do philosophy in Swedish. Of course, you can do philosophy in, in German. I mean, any normal European language <laughs> will will uh, will do. Uh, so I don't think it really depends on 
on the language. Well, to some extent it does. To some extent it does. Because, you know, many philosophical issues have really been about how, you know, about terms, about how we understand different terms. And then in some other language, that term or may have two different meanings or there there are um, two, uh, two different terms for that one thing that sort of narrows it down more and, and sort of the, the question or issue becomes less relevant. There's a lot of that in analytic uh, philosophy, which is what I've studied. Uh, so yeah, th there is something about language, but but you know the 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 statement that you couldn't do philosophy in English—that's sort of just a, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these attempts to sound clever, and it it doesn't really say a whole lot. <laughs> so yeah, of course you can, and like and I I agree completely with with what you said there, Greg, about David Hume. He is one of my favorite writers. Period. I mean, he's just he, he was uh, an amazing writer. So Gaddius writes in with 24 US dollars. Thank you very much. There's been a debate on the right this week over the woke CIA. From what I can gather, it boils down to a chicken and egg argument. Did the CIA get co-opted by the woke globalist culture or is the woke culture a CIA psyop to begin with? Well, it's a psyop, definitely, but you're giving th those people who want to say it's a CIA psyop are giving them entirely too much credit, I'm afraid. Uh, they didn't come up with this nonsense. It's more hatched in academia, to be perfectly honest, than in the CIA. Uh, and the CIA is just full of a lot of, uh, you know, somewhat intelligent people, moderately intelligent people. There are some moderately intelligent people in our intelligence agencies, uh, but they tend to be, they're basically, they're basically midwits. The intelligence agencies are filled with midwit strivers, and they follow the fashions set in the elite media and in academia. Uh, they certainly aren't setting the trends here. Yeah, there's a book about how the CIA promoted abstract expressionism. Well, they didn't cook up abstract expressionism. They saw this stuff and uh, they thought, hey, we can use this in our propaganda war against the uh, the USSR. The USSR is is stodgy. They they want their pictures to be about things that you can recognize. Uh, it's very easy to tell when you hang a piece of Soviet art upside down, uh, but it's impossible to tell whether abstract expressionism is hung upside down. And that's a sign that America is the land of the free and the, the most progressive society in the world because uh, we basically uh, encourage paintings that just look like drop cloths. And so they, they got behind abstract expressionism to, to try and argue that America was more, was more liberal and progressive because it was more into decadent art. They didn't come up with the idea. They, they just had some mid, midwit strivers at Langley decided to throw God knows how much uh, U.S. tax dollars uh, into this. And of course, behind the scenes, what was going on was ultimately uh, the, the modern art versus Stalin stuff in the 1950s was basically just Trotsky versus Stalin. Uh, and the United States and the U.S. taxpayers were just basically manipulated uh, by, uh, it was, we were just pawns in a game between a Jewish Bolshevik faction over here and the Bolshe Bolshevik Bolsheviks back home that threw the Jews out. 
uh, we're just playthings uh, in, in in these particular circumstances. And so, giving the CIA uh, credit for engineering wokeness, I think. Uh, is silly. It's giving them f- far too much credit. They're really not very bright people. America's intelligence failures uh, are due largely to the fact that our intelligence community isn't filled with particularly intelligent people. So I don't want to run out of time. So let's just leap forward. Uh, Anarcho Tyranny writes in uh, with 20 US dollars. Thank you. That's very generous. Uh, would you classify marriage between a white and a half Jew as miscegenation? Could such a person be welcomed into a white American ethnostate as long as they fully reject Jewish culture and identity? Well, my attitude about this is, is it's a nuance. So g- give me a few seconds. But it really depends on what the person thinks. Uh, there are a lot of people, they're low ethnocentrism Jews, who marry out. Uh, they marry out because none of it means much to them, and uh, they just disappear into the greater run of humanity. And I don't think that that's a particularly threatening thing. I think that there will come a time when a significant percentage of uh, elites in Western European countries are going to have tiny fragments of Jewish ancestry uh, because of low ethnocentrism Jews basically marrying out and uh, becoming mainstream Europeans. I, I don't think that's a terrible problem. Uh, I do think it's a problem if uh, because there's power in having a, a, a Jewish ancestor now, if these people try and leverage that to get into the hostile elite that we belong to, because that's our enemy. So my attitude towards this is basically, and this is basically what I said a few years ago to Tara McCarthy, who's got some marginal Jewish ancestry. I said, people like you are as Jewish as you want to be. If you want to be Jewish uh, because you want to join the hostile elite and use that Jewish connection, that makes you my enemy and I'll fight you. Uh, If you think, you know, I'm going to honor the decision of my Jewish grandmother who said, screw this, I'm marrying out. Uh, well, if you're going to honor her dis- uh, decision, I, I'm, I don't care. I'm going to just treat you as an honorary white person. Uh, if you're not admixed with something really exotic, like, for instance, uh, Somali or uh, Eskimo or something like that, right? Uh, but anyway, um, those are my thoughts on this. But this is a huge topic for 10 minutes uh, Woes, what are your thoughts? Do you think half Jews are necessarily uh, to be shunned from a race-conscious white community? No, no. Uh, I, I would say it, it does depend on what they think, but the, the, also, the other thing is the, the matril, I've forgotten the, the name, but the matrilineal thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah matri- there's a specific name for it, but um, the that seems to have an effect that seems to have a sort of placebo psychological effect whereby if they are technically jewish uh through you know uh, through the mother's line then it it seems to have more of a hold on them and uh more of a calling to them as adults whereas if it's through the father then they're not technically jewish and so i think they have they feel less of a uh, an attachment and less of an expectation 
upon them. So that that's been my experience. Uh, it's not something that I would worry about very much, but I would be. Yeah, I think if if it's through their father's line, then uh, I would be more relaxed. Interesting. Frody, what are your thoughts? This is a, a question that doesn't really have a simple answer because on principle, yes, it could be acceptable. But I think... Um, I think that those kinds of things have caused a lot of problems in the past uh, that someone with part Jewish ancestry finally realizes that, you know, that actually means something and then their loyalty shifts and blood is thicker than water. You know, there are people who didn't know they were Jews and then they found out later in life that, oh, I have a Jewish grandparent, I have a Jewish grandfather. Uh, and they become interested in that, and that shifts their loyalty. So, you know, these that is the problem of racial mixing and ethnic mixing is that it 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 um, it splits your loyalty, and sometimes it shifts your loyalty completely, uh, and that is why it's a problem. That is why it can be a problem. So, yeah, on principle, you know, it it might well. Uh, it might well be acceptable. I'm not going to say that it, it it can never be okay. It can never be acceptable. But we should be aware that even, even those kinds of uh, relationships can cause problems and can um, can shift loyalty in a way that, that, that most people don't think about. Because most people think, why does it matter? Why would it matter? Well, it has mattered a lot in the past. Well, it does uh, matter a lot. And the question it, it is... It does matter a lot. And, yeah. and I think that people in general just underestimate how much that part of your identity, your ethnic identity, uh, is important for how you think and how you act because it's not you, it's not supposed to be like that in modern liberal Western society, but for everyone else on the planet, that is hugely important. So, yeah, it, it shouldn't be underestimated is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think it's definitely a perilous thing. I, I would I would not I would not encourage it. Um, uh, Michael writes in with fifteen US dollars. Hail brothers, hail the gods, hail our folk. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm going to zip over to our D Live and see if we've had some new stuff. Old man Yinzer writes in with one diamond. Thank you. Whatever happened to Faith Goldie? As far as I know, Faith uh, Faith got married. I don't know if she's a mom yet. She's still involved, I think, in some ways with politics. I think she's going to run for office again in the future. I, I hope she does that. I don't think her views have changed at all. Uh, but when women get married and start nesting, it, it takes a lot of time sometimes. And she might just be waiting and biding her time for the next opportunity to get back in the fight somehow. So I, I respect her, and I don't think she's gone anywhere. She certainly, certainly hasn't changed her views. Woz, do you know anything about Faith Goldie? What's no, it? no. She and I lost contact a couple of years ago, and uh, we, we never really restored it. Um, it's a shame because I really liked her, uh, and I admired her as well. So uh, I hope that we do uh, regain contact at some point in the future. And I don't know what she's up to just now. So El Degogo writes in with one lemon, uh, Bomsky, Chusky, one lemon and one diamond. And, and his comment is chicken, rabbits, rutabagas, that's all there is. I 
Don't know about that, but it sounds like a really good Sunday dinner, at least, or at least the beginnings of one. Uh, Ganser Prenadier, thank you very much. Two ice cream, National Front, one ice cream, Bomsky Chusky, one diamond. Just go back to getting rich, forget politics. I, I don't I don't think so. I don't think that follows uh, from anything that we've been saying. Um, so let me check again, just refresh things at entropy. And I have a couple notes down here. Uh, we had a question from Lovecraft's cat that I skipped over. What is the moral code of anti-whites? How can we oppose it? I think that we're going to have to put this one off till next week because that's a huge, huge issue. But I do have another question here from Joaquin. Joaquin writes in, what are you looking for right now in the relationship department? <laughs> uh, so I think this is kind of fun uh, as, as a final question. What are you looking for right now in the relationship department? Um, I'll just say this. I would really like to find somebody that primarily that I can share that uh, that I can share artistic experience and travel with. That's what I would really like. I'd like to have a person in my life that I can reliably uh, watch movies and go to concerts with, because that's a huge part of my life, and uh, less so. But talk about books and things like that, books and ideas, and travel. Because eventually travel is going to open up again, and I'm going to do a lot of traveling. I've got a wanderlust that's pent up, and I definitely have a lot more cities and museums and monuments to uh, take in uh, in the rest of my life. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm looking for in the relationship department. What about you, Woes? Oh, uh, I, I don't like to talk about my private life because uh, I, I've learned that it's it's generally a bad bad idea. Um, I'll just say that I'm quite content. Good, that's great. What about you, uh, Frody? I don't really have a, a great answer to that either. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not married, but uh, you know that that is obviously the goal <laughs> so yeah I don't, I don't really have a, a good answer to that I, I don't know what to say really okay well let's wrap up here and uh, Wos, can you tell us what's coming up uh what are you doing any talks or special streams participating yes. in anything yes i've been doing a, a show uh, on telegram every monday night uh, last week i did it on the sunday because uh of commitments, but uh, usually I do it on Monday. Tomorrow I'll be doing it tomorrow night at 10 p.m. GMT, which is 5 p.m. EST, uh, and then that goes up on Odyssey later. So it's quite fun, and uh, I have entropy and also something called CoinTree that people can post questions on. So uh, yeah, and I'm just generally on Telegram every day. I'm active on there. Great, and I put your link tree up. And Frody, what's coming up next from you? Surely this Decameron Film Festival is is winding up fairly soon. This is a <laughs> marathon. You would think so, right? Yeah, I, I'm. I sort of bit off more than I could chew with this one. I think. I think I have a total of forty five people on the list, but now we only have seven guests left. And coming up tomorrow, uh, tomorrow evening. 
European time, is Jim Goad. And I know that Jim Goad is in the chat as well. And I'm very much looking forward to having him back on the show. We're going to talk about Billy Jack from 1971. Uh, and that starts at 7 p.m. Central European time. So that's 7 p.m. Uh, Stockholm, Paris, whatever, uh, and 1 p.m. New York. So that's coming up tomorrow. And I'm also doing the... Uh, the new morning show that I do weekdays, Monday to Friday, uh, on the Guide to Culture channel. And people can follow that on Telegram, uh, at Wake Up Right, at Wake Up Right. And the schedule for the Decameron is gtkmedia.org forward slash Decameron. But yeah, you can just go to the website, gtkmedia.org. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Frody and Woes for being a great panel as usual. I want to thank everyone who's listening. I especially want to thank the donors who have helped out. It's very, very important. I want to thank our moderators, especially Gaddius, who's been very, very active. And uh, we will definitely be back uh, for another episode of Countercurrents Radio next week. And uh, I'm also going to be having a surprise interview next week. I'm going, I haven't set the date yet. I'm going to try and do it as a live stream and I will let everybody know, but I have a surprise interview with a very prominent author that I, that's in the works and that I hope I will hit you with uh, before next Sunday. So next Sunday we'll, we'll be back uh, with the regular show, but we're also going to have something maybe on Saturday, maybe on Friday that I think will knock your socks off. So thank you very much, and we will be back 